I hate this cave. Have I mentioned that I hate this cave? Only like 20 times today. How about that I hate, hate, hate this cave? Not only do I hate this cave, I also hate this hate. It's a nice cave, and there's delicious spring water nearby. And the kid who walks up from New Haven and leaves us the bucket of food. And the mountain lion. And the mountain lion. Why do you always bring that up? One day there was a mountain lion. It totally might have been somebody's dog. It could have really been a huge spaniel. Yeah, carrying a sheep in its jaws. Why do we have to hide in here? What did we ever do that was so bad? Dude, we beheaded the king of England. Yeah, that was years ago. Years and years. What is it with these people? Don't they ever move on? Let it go, let it go. Please don't sing that again. I'm just, I'm so tired of cold food. I I wish we had a microwave. A micro what? I don't know. It's this totally made up word that just came into my head for a second. Hmm. Want to play 20 questions? Okay. What am I thinking of? Swords. No. Cheese. No. I give up. You can't give up that easily. Come on, dude. We're regicides. We've changed history. We don't give up. Does it not strike you as ironic that 350 years from now there will be a three judges motor lodge right below here named after us? But we have to sleep in a freaking cave. Who's the third judge? Exactly. Some random dude who did not go through this with us. So let's let these people explain this whole mess. Meanwhile, you go back to whatever you're thinking about and I'll sing my song. Let it go, let it go. I can't take this. And now his college fraternity name was Dixwell, Colin McEnroe. It was not. However, uh, I did go to Davenport College uh, at Yale University, and John Davenport will be coming up in the conversation that we have today. And, um, and, and I was very, I thought I knew the story of the three judges, but I was just, as I was just saying to our guest, it turns out I don't, uh, not after all the reading and preparation we did today. It turns out there are just many, many things uh, about this that, that I didn't quite understand. So, uh, first of all, let me tell you who's in studio with me. Lord Charles Spencer, Ninth Earl Spencer, uh, is here with us. He is the author of several books, most recently, Killers of the King, The Men Who Dared to Execute Charles I. And I, I want to say, just before we get going, I'm not just saying this to be nicer because he's here, but both both Betsy and I uh, found this to be a very briskly and wittily and enjoyably written history. If you're right now in the middle of either reading or watching Game of Thrones, it's a very easy jump, I think, from that <laughs> to this. Um, and uh, we actually, we'll, we'll be talking a little bit later in the show about the casting because uh, Charles has uh, some good ideas. And then some Rosamund Pike is not right for the Scottish mistress. You know who is? Do you watch Game of Thrones? I do. The Egret. Egret. Uh, yes. You know nothing, John Snow. She would be... <laughs> She's the Scottish mistress. Perfect. Yes, right. we need to build that part. All right. Yeah, obviously it needs to be written up a little <laughs> bit more. So, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Also joining us by phone, Tim Harris, professor of European history at Brown University and the author of a trilogy of books on the British monarchy, Restoration, Charles II and His Kingdoms, 1660 to 1685, Revolution, the Great Crisis of the British Monarchy, uh, and most recently, Rebellion, Britain's First Stuart Kings. So we'll come to him in just a second. Uh, we want to begin by telling, we're going to have the two of you really tell the story uh, of Charles the uh, first, his end uh, of uh, I mean we don't, we can't do we only have an hour uh, and I really, and I really want to concentrate as much as we can towards the end on, on the New World story, which is an amazing amazing story all by itself. It's an action movie all by itself, but we do have to sort of set the stage. So um, maybe you can begin by just saying why was Charles the first executed? Well, I mean, what happened? 
Well, he was the wrong man in the wrong job. He was uh, a second son who inherited the kingdom uh, because his elder brother took an ill-advised dip in the Thames and, and died. And he was a, 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 a sort of religious man rather than a man of politics. And he took control in England at a time when politics, religion and society were changing enormously. And he was very stubborn. He was quite arrogant. And he polarized uh, his kingdom into two camps, the royalists who supported him and the parliamentarians, which had a strong Presbyterian and Puritan backbone to it, and uh, repeatedly lost battles, eventually lost a war, uh, reignited a war to, to have a second civil war. And rather like your civil wars, our British one remains the, the most bloody conflict in terms of loss of life per head of population that we've ever experienced. And they pinned the blame when, when he was defeated and kept double dealing secretly. They pinned the blame on him. And in, in a sort of military tribunal, they put him on trial uh, in Westminster and put him to death uh, with an with a axe man doing the job. I'm Tim Harris. Uh, based on what I've read of your work, uh, I'm not sure that you would disagree with anything uh, that Charles Spencer just said. On the other hand, um, uh, you have at least a, a somewhat favorable view of Charles I as the lens of history pulls back and, and looks at him and looks at some of what he did. Uh, it may be exactly, as Charles just said, wrong man at the wrong time, rather than just deeply, deeply wrong man at any time. Yes, no, I, I, I totally agree. It was, the, uh, it was a, a job that required a man of considerable and inordinate skill at that time. It was, it was a troublesome inheritance. His father was a very skilled politician and a bright man, had struggled with it, and Charles was just the wrong man to cope with it. Uh, there are a series of problems, I think. I mean, there were serious financial problems for the Crown. Uh, the Crown's finances had been hit by inflation, uh, there was a troublesome relationship with the Parliament and negotiations over finance uh, exacerbated those problems. There were religious tensions in the kingdom. Uh, there was a tricky European situation uh, and whose side was, once Europe went to war and there was a confessional war in Europe at this time, which side was England going to enter in, you know, in support of? Then there was problems with Scotland and Ireland, which were, were crucial, I think, in understanding where things went wrong. And Charles actually managed to succeeded in mismanaging all of those problems, I think. And that's why a crisis has had erupted by 1640. I think it's important to uh, realize, though, that at the beginning, people wanted to reform the monarchy. As Charles explained, it was only because he lost the first civil war and then started a second civil war that some people came to think that the only way forward was to execute the king. Initially, the hope was we, we could try and reform the monarchy and address some of the problems we've had. And I think it's important to try and understand things from Charles I's perspective as well. I mean, I think, I don't see him as an evil, you know, wannabe no. tyrant figure. I think he was desperately trying to solve difficult problems, and he just mismanaged them. The, um, the, on the other side, uh, it, it, it would be a mistake, based on everything I've read by uh, both of you, uh, to, to assume that the other side was really a united front, right? You had all kinds of, first of all, uh, religious, religiously disparate people. I mean, we're, we're going to be talking a lot about Puritans, but not everybody was a Puritan. We've got, we're going to be talking about the Parliament, but the army sometimes was in a very different place from the Parliament. Um, Charles, maybe you give us kind of a sense of that. In terms of the forces arrayed uh, against Charles I, it, it wasn't a monolith. No, it really wasn't. I mean, the, the divisions became more apparent after the war was won, which is often the case. You can be allied closely when you have a, a common goal. But once the, the, the king was defeated and eventually executed, it became very clear that the major tension was between the sort of extreme Puritan angle that was controlling a lot of the army. And uh, the army was a particularly uh, potent tool. It had been 
honed into into a, a, a pitch that the British had never seen before. The New Model Army, it was called, and it was effectively the the, the winning force of of the war. But there were a lot of politicians and people of substance in in, in power in uh, in the localities in Britain who were very nervous about this Puritan powerhouse of an army. And they were Presbyterian. They disagreed with a lot the king stood for politically. But they certainly didn't want to see the country then become not a military dictatorship, but a military-controlled uh, entity. And so that's when the divisions were there. But I, 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 you're absolutely right. There was always a, a sort of alliance that was cobbled together, and it unraveled very quickly. And that's why, and eventually, I believe, there was no strong enough character who could bridge army and politics uh, in the way that Cromwell had done. Uh, and when Cromwell died, um, that, that's when it became clear that uh, the, the, the Republic couldn't really continue. You know, uh, Tim Harris, I hate to force a comparison, particularly if it's not warranted, but the more that I read about this, the more that I thought about it, the more I saw slight parallels anyway to the Middle East, the current Middle East, to, to the Arabian Peninsula and even the subcontinent right now, where you have religious factions that are not getting along. Um, you have um, a de- sort of a, a destabilization of the old powers. Um, and you have at least one group. I mean, it seems to me that that uh, a raid against Charles I, as, as Charles was just saying, you have Puritans who have created this so-called new model army, which is very much, you know, whose practices are very much fused with their own, you should pardon the expression, fundamentalism. Um, uh, many of them are really fueled by a kind of millennial zeal, right? They, they think not only are they fighting a war, but they're really participating in the ushering in of the millennium. This is very, very uh, consistent. What's happening right now seems like it dovetails with their understanding of the Bible. So, I mean, this is, it's not exclusively a religious war uh, or a religious factional war as we have right now between Sunni and Shia, but uh, am I wrong to see some parallels? I think there there are some parallels, and there are always parallels in in history anyway. I think understanding the sort of religious fundamentalism of the time uh, is, is easier for us today, perhaps, than it would have been 30 years ago. Um, I think parallels can also be misleading. I think there is a strong secular tradition of a belief in the rule of law. And the way I see things happening is is there there is a series of of coalitions and divisions that happen. I think Charles I succeeds in alienating a broad cross-section of the population by 1640, including uh, people who are later going to support him in the Civil War. Um, He does this because he rules without Parliament, and he he does things which are of questionable legality in terms of the way he finances the state. And there's a strong secular-minded legal tradition in England which says we we have the rule of law, and this is going beyond the rule of law. Um, So in 1640, most of the nation, I think, is united against Charles I, and reformers are agreed over the course of 40-41. What then divides the nation into royalists and parliamentarians is the fact that there are some people who think reform needs to be pushed further. And again, I would stress secular reform there. People want to control the army. They want to control uh, the appointment of the Crown's ministers because people believe in monarchy. So the only way you can hold the king accountable is if you stop him having the powers to uh, having control of the system so that he can abuse his powers. So if you can put good counselors in place and make sure he doesn't use the army in the wrong way, then you can control the monarchy. So there are people who want to take the power of the militia away from the king, and they want to choose the king's ministers, and they also want further reforms in the church. 
And the people who fight against Parliament, who side with the king in 1642, are those who want to preserve the king's powers and to preserve the old Anglican Church of bishops and prayer book. Now, the royalists lose the civil war, and as Charles just explained, um, the, the parliamentarian Puritan faction then starts splitting amongst itself between moderate and radical factions, and that explains. Uh, and you do get some radical millenarian groups coming out of that, and there certainly is that sort of fundamentalism that, that comes into play. But I think another important thing to stress is the Puritans, the moderate Puritans, are just as concerned about their radical wing as the royalists are. Mm -hmm. Um, so that is why the, the, the parliamentary coalition begins to fall apart in 1646. The Second Civil War makes it very difficult to negotiate with, with, with uh, Charles I, and some people still want to have a negotiated settlement. They're talking about this right up until the end of 1648. But uh, radicals uh, in the army uh, purge parliament, and, and it's the purge parliament that goes on to try and execute the king. It, it is, you know, reading uh, Killers of the King, uh, Charles Spencer, um, uh, in this first section, one is constantly, if one has any sympathy for Charles I, which I, I wound up having some of, one is constantly saying, just, are you trying to get beheaded here? Are you, <laughs> I mean, there, there are so many accommodations made to him, and, it, and certainly in the first go-round, there are so many accommodations made. I mean, he's often free to come and go as he chooses, although he's maybe nominally, you know, I mean, he's... Uh, he's lost a civil war. Uh, he's often housed in sumptuous quarters and, and treated rather nicely. And even in the second go round, it isn't. I mean, it takes a long time before he experiences anything that you would equate with being a prisoner, a typical prisoner. It, it really is as though people are trying to be as absolutely nice about this as they possibly can. But he can't quite find the thing to say that puts the pin back in the grenade. Well, that's absolutely right. I mean, there, there was no blueprint on how to treat a defeated monarch. And um, so the default, I think, was to look after him in a in a reduced, contained way, but again with huge respect. And there are, we have these um, invoices of, of of the finery that went into his prisons before he was received into them, which shows the enormous trouble people went to looking after him. But at the end of the day, he didn't understand, I don't think, what a dire position he was in. He thought that whatever happened, he was essential to the future of the country. And therefore, he, he felt totally at ease with trying to play off the Scots against the Puritans, against even interests in the city of London. Uh, he thought they were all absolutely beholden to him. And at the end of the day, they would have to deal with him. Uh, but what he hadn't appreciated was that there was an element in the army who were absolutely determined that he answer not, as Tim was saying quite rightly, not as a, a man with bad uh, servants advising him, but actually as Charles Stuart, uh, a tyrant and traitor. And this is a huge shift in, in the way that the British uh, had to think about themselves, to actually put a, a king on trial under his family name as a man who had done terrible wrong to his country. Charles, another thing that, that emerges, I, I think, uh, for those of us who are, are not as close readers of this history as we probably should be, but uh, as I'm reading Killers of the King, is what we're seeing. I mean, it's obvious it, within Cromwell's world, within the world uh, of, um, uh, of the people opposing the parliamentarians and within that army, you're seeing men who ordinarily wouldn't have been – major generals. They are men who would not have ordinarily participated in major power struggles, men whose backgrounds were far more common, uh, ranging from butchers' sons to merchants to sons of, uh, of, uh, of vicars. Uh, and, and, and suddenly they are occupying, they're playing the Game of Thrones, basically. 
Well, that's the thrilling energy of this this tale. Uh, basically, you've got these men, for the first time in English history, very ordinary men getting to uh, places of great power through merit and, and through being of the right hue. You know, they were Puritans and they were good soldiers and they rose through the ranks. Um, and then they are in a position, unbelievably, of being able to sit as judges of a king. And then, of course, they have a decade where they fall out. A lot of them fall out among themselves. But they are very senior, serious uh, players in, in, in the political uh, background uh, for, for England. And some of them are, uh, uh, well, for instance, Oliver Cromwell is, is the most prominent non-royal leader that Britain's ever had. And, and you have these astonishing figures. And then, of course, it unravels quite rapidly for them after Cromwell's death. Then they're in serious trouble. They go from being super powerful men to being the most untouchable of outlaws. Um, That's a good place for us to pause. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, We'll come back. Uh, We're going to tell a little bit of the story of the Restoration, and then uh, I want to devote uh, quite a bit of time to this new world drama. The drama that takes place uh, runs from Boston uh, to New Haven and sometimes elsewhere, back up to Hatfield. Uh, It's a story you may think you know. You might be wrong. We're back, uh, and uh, we're live here in the afternoon. If you have questions as we go along here, our comments, our number is 860-275-7266. We are necessarily leapfrogging through history uh, as we uh, talk to to both uh, Charles Spencer, author of Killers of the King, The Men Who Dared to Execute Charles I, and Tim Harris, uh, who's a professor of European history at Brown Brown University and the author of three books on the British monarchy, including this whole period here. I should mention that um, tonight... Charles Spencer, you're going to be in New Canaan. I don't. Do you know the name of the bookstore? I don't know the name of the bookstore. We'll uh, find out the name yes. of the bookstore. We'll find it out. <laughs> All right. <laughs> anyway, you can meet him then. You can get the book signed. I don't know if you're going to be doing readings. He, yes. He'll, he'll answer all the questions he didn't that I forgot to ask him today. <laughs> all those things uh, will happen tonight. Uh, and so uh, as we go along here, uh, as I said, we're going to have to jump over a lot of stuff. And, and I'm about to do that right now. I'm kind of going to jump over the whole period of parliamentary rule and uh, and and Cromwell and, and talk about the Restoration. So, um, Charles, maybe you can sort of start us off with this. Um, you know, we've seen this period of incredible bloodshed, as you say, as a percentage of, uh, of English population or of British population, and we can throw an Irish population, too. This period of time, just incredible amounts of death and bloodshed in these two civil wars uh, and, and uprisings elsewhere. And then Charles II just kind of walks in uh, with a wave of his hand uh, and nobody draws a sword and nobody fires a shot and he's king again. How does that happen? It's quite extraordinary. If you think of the power of Cromwell, uh, he died suddenly in, in 1658. And, you know, it's difficult uh, for some of his supporters, some of the killers of the king had said, you must uh, establish a dynasty so we can actually keep going after you're dead. But he didn't do that. And also he didn't. Uh, put to death a lot of leading royalists, which a lot of his supporters had said you should do for the safety of the country. So instead, his son Richard inherits the Lord Protectorate, as it's known, the, the, the office of state controlling the, 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 the nations of Britain. But he's not up to it. He realizes it. He retires. And then there's a sort of period where things just unravel in Britain. And there's a lot of unrest. And then serious people on the parliamentary side start negotiating uh, secretly with Charles II's people uh, in in continental Europe. And then there's a sort of compromise reached where I suppose the British just think we we, we go back to our default, we'll have a monarchy again. And Charles II is invited back on condition that first he pays the army so that that's put to bed as a a force. Uh, Second, that he will not look for vengeance against the 50% of the nation 
who were involved in fighting his family, and a third is to do with property. But that the key one is he leaves hanging a sort of clause in his acceptance of these terms that, in fact, he will be guided by Parliament. He realises that was one of the faults of his father, not listening to Parliament. And then he packs Parliament pretty much with his own people and, and is in a position of unimaginable power. Having been a penniless exile in Europe with no hope of coming back, he's suddenly back as the mighty King of England and is greeted with an unbelievable fanfare. The, the restoration itself is one of the greatest celebrations I'd venture in, in British history. Um, Tim Harris, what about that? Um, uh, obviously, not everybody would, would have been happy to have Charles II back, and some people might be actually more happy not to have Cromwell or anything like Cromwell than they were happy to have Charles II back. How, how, how was the Restoration understood and, and greeted there on English soil? Well, I see the, the Republican regime really collapsed from within. There have been various royalist conspiracies in the 1650s to try and bring down uh, the Republic, but none have succeeded. Uh, but as Charles explained, there's a period of instability after the, the death of Oliver Cromwell and Richard Cromwell actually resigns. And then power split between the, the army and the rump of the Persian parliament that's left. And there's a lot of agitation. There's economically things are quite bad. There's high taxes to support the army. There are tax strikes. And people want a restoration of their liberties at law, uh, as they see confirmed by the ancient constitution and Magna Carta. They're fighting for their birthrights. They're fighting for free parliaments. And that's what the campaign is in 1659, 1660. There are also conspiracies in Ireland um, and also in Scotland. In the end, Monk marches down, General Monk marches down from uh, Scotland to try and restore order in um, in London, and he dissolves around Parliament. And that is celebrated as a deliverance from the tyranny of the previous uh, few years. But it, it's seen as a, a liberating uh, event. So that's what people are fighting for. Now, they call a convention, uh, which is a, a Parliament not called by the the Crown, and it's the convention that decides to recall Charles II as the only option. In, uh, in the spring of 1660, Charles positions himself quite cleverly. He issues a declaration from Breda promising everything's everyone, basically, and uh, promising complete indemnity and also liberty of conscience and to heal our bleeding wounds. And that's why people look to Charles II. I think by 1660, most people do want Charles II back, but they want different things. Um, some people see the restoration as having been brought back, uh, as having been achieved by Parliament. The Crown was brought, brought back by Parliament, and therefore it's a limited parliamentary monarchy. Some people see it as divinely ordained. There's no violence, there's no bloodshed. This must be what God wants. Now, the important thing, I think, about what was said in answer to the previous question about why Charles I didn't reach an accommodation is he didn't compromise any of the powers of the monarchy. That's why he refuses to plea at his trial, because as soon as he, if he'd entered a plea, he would have conceded the point that kings were accountable to their subjects. And what they actually do in 1660, when they bring back Charles II, they pretend the previous 12 years hadn't happened. In terms of legislation, they actually repeal everything uh, that's been passed since the Civil War began, and they just totally put the clock back. There are a few people who don't want um, the king back, and there are plenty of examples in court records of people saying, you know, why do we have to have Charles II? He's a Scotsman anyway. We don't like the Scots. Uh, we have people saying, if I have my rusty old sword by my side, I would run it through Charles II's belly, or I would hang him at my door if I could get hold of him. So there are a handful of examples. You can find a handful of examples in court records of people speaking out against uh, the restoration of money. It's very difficult to know 
in the climate of 1660, how reliable these accounts are. Some people said these things when they were clearly very drunk, and of course they were informed on by people. Um, you know, one of the things that's been interesting for me is uh, even watching or reading the letters uh, in the New World uh, as they watch. They're trying to figure out what's going on here. And, of course, you know, I mean, in the 1640s and 1650s, a certain number of people actually moved back. I think from New Haven alone, 44 people moved back to England thinking, well, I mean, it's going to be great for Puritans now. This is good. We're Puritans. We'll go home. And But as you're watching them and they're reading these letters, and I mean, information is a little fuzzy and the pace of it's very slow. Yeah. And they're going, what, what's, hap- what is, what's happening? <laughs> Wait a minute. We're not in charge anymore. And, and so, um, uh, uh, Charles, uh, eventually we do ha- we have this, uh, it's been alluded to, I think, a few times already, but there's this, uh, I, I think it's called the Act of Indemnity and Oblivion or something like that. And it does have this accept clause, right? I mean, everybody's going to get mercy except. Explain who's in the accept clause. Well, the accept clause is very much the, the people responsible for Charles I's death. And that was, they were known as the regicides or the regicides in America. But they, they were originally 80 men, 59 who signed the death warrant and another 21 who were either prosecutors in, in the case against the king all the officers on the scaffold when he was executed. And of these 80, you've got to remember this is a time of very limited life expectancy. Uh, 38 was the average uh, length of life. Uh, of those 80, during the 11 years when uh, between Charles I being beheaded and Charles II coming back in the Restoration, 20 had died. So there were 60 men of these 80 left. And really, it's the hunting down of these men that uh, that engaged Charles II, who in English culture is seen as this a pleasure-seeking man who we know had at least 54 mistresses and, and, and you know, was a, 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 a patron of the racing track, horse racing, rather than a, a particular follower of politics. But he was determined, uh, up until the end, sending redcoats, as they were even called then, across the Atlantic to look over here for the ones who were hiding in America, because three of them fled here, at least three. And, um, you know, this was, uh, these were people that the king could not forgive because of the very personal feelings he had about the death of his father. Um, there's also a period of time in which people are kind of being weasels about this. In other words, ratting each other out or trying to make sure either that, that, that somebody else is on the list instead of them, right? Not everybody behaved. Well, this is the joy of history is the man watching. And uh, people behaved, uh, some behaved incredibly nobly and some really not. And yes, there's, there's, they're trying to guess what's going to happen. I think a lot of them thought just uh, there was a sort of magic number of seven would be held to account of the 60 people. And people were scrambling not to be in that seven. Little did they know that the net would eventually be widened to to capture pretty much anyone involved with the death of Charles I. And really, you know, there's there's a man called Inglesby who behaved despicably. And it was very tough for these, these men when they were eventually put on trial in, in London. Some had handed themselves in in good faith on the king's word that they would be uh, maybe fined, maybe imprisoned for a little while, but not have their lives endangered. And suddenly to find they were being uh, accused of high treason uh, with the most appalling end in prospect if they were found guilty. But they were being tried by, uh, uh, sitting on the bench, were people who had fought with them against Charles I. And they found that, that sort of level of hypocrisy very hard to take. Now, uh, some of them, as we are going to tell you, uh, fled to the New World, uh, some of the people who wound up on this list, rather than stay there and wait to be executed. And some of them were smart enough even to do that before the list came out, right? I think Goff and Whaley got on a boat before it was even, they, before they were. Yeah, so there were two, two very, very senior members of the Cromwell uh, establishment 
major generals, Goff and Whaley or Wally, and they were a father-in-law and son-in-law of each other. They were related either directly or by marriage to Cromwell. And they weren't sure if they would be among the, the ones who would be held to account. And they got on a boat um, and they beat by one day an order to arrest them. They arrived in Massachusetts to find that they were treated as, uh, as, said, as if they had been dropped from heaven. People thought they were fantastic figures to admire because they had dared to judge a king and, and condemn him. And they lived for seven months in, in some, you know, sort of celebrity status, I suppose you'd say. But then things began to go very wrong because the word came from across the Atlantic that they were to be handed back and punished and they would have to be dealt with in London, which would be a gruesome execution, and that it was made very clear anyone in these colonies over here who helped them in any way would suffer the same fate. So I want to come back for in just a second to that period of celebrity because it has in it uh, maybe my favorite story from, uh, from your book. But um, Tim Harris, we have to say that this is... This creates an incredible political hot potato, one that would have been there anyway. In other words, if no regicides had ever come to the New World, there would be nonetheless a tremendous amount of tension between the crown and the leaders of these colonies, none of whom, I mean, none of whom had been particularly, I mean, they were all Puritans, basically, and and uh, none of whom had been particularly supportive of the monarchy until quite recently, <laughs> until they had to. But to have these regicides, to suddenly have these men associated with the killing of Charles I, they're in the colonies and, and under the auspices of various governors who somehow or other had to find some way to to kiss and make up with the crown. And Charles II was no dummy. He knew what was going had been going on there so far. This was a very, very sticky situation. Yeah, I, I slightly disagree with the, the view that the, the government was out for retribution at this time. I, I actually think the thirst for blood was very limited. I mean, uh, of the um, regicides, there were, there were 49 accepted from the um, act of indemnity, uh, plus two... Um, executioners, uh, plus Vane, who was not a regicide, but a Republican. Um, um, Nineteen had their sentences suspended. Uh, uh, there were 29 trials, I believe. Two pleaded guilty. Uh, 27, there were 27 trials, and, two, uh, and there were two people pleaded guilty, so 29 in total. Uh, ten were executed, uh, just ten. Uh, three were captured on the continent and brought back for execution. And then Vane was also captured, uh, but he was not a regicide. Uh, now, Charles quoted the figure of about 80 regicide accepted. Um, depends how you count them. Uh, there were people accepted for lesser offences. You could put the figure over 100. But in Scotland, 700 people were excluded from the provisions of the Act of Indemnity of 1662. Uh, Charles II really didn't like the Scots. He held the Scots responsible for starting the Civil War, which arguably they did, with their resistance to, uh, to Charles I. Uh, they'd helped Parliament win the Civil War uh, through the Solemn League and Covenant and joining on, on Parliament's side and, and helping them defeat um, Charles I in crucial battles in the First Civil War. They'd actually not supported regicide, the Scots, but uh, I think it's in Scotland you see the uh, first of blood against the Covenanters. Now, with the regicides that fled to New England, um, it is a political hot potato, and I think the, the, the governors in, in New England are, are concerned to protect their own autonomy, and they're worried about what uh, Charles II might be doing. Um, so they're resistant to too much interference from the Crown, but they've got to retain good political relations, but also the Crown needs to 
to continue good economic relations. So I'm not convinced how wholehearted the pursuit of these regicides. I think it's sporadic. There are moments when, when it wants to be seen to be taking action, but I'm not sure how wholeheartedly it really goes after them. Well, this we, will cost we, me too great. We do know? have moments where Charles II gets very impatient, and at yeah. one point he he threatens to sell New Haven to Spain, which is my second favorite thing uh, <laughs> uh, uh, that I learned in this book. Uh, but uh, and I would New Haven would be so much better now. The restaurants would be great. Um, <laughs> but he also says to Clarendon in July 1661, I'm weary of hanging. Right. Stop this. Well, uh, I don't want any more. You know, um, Charles, I want to go back for a second to that time uh, when Whaley, we say Whaley because it's Whaley Avenue, yes. Whaley and Goff uh, first uh, arrive in, in Boston, in, in Massachusetts. And they are kind of celebrities. And they are they're sort of interesting figures, too, because once again, they're men who probably, you know, in a different era wouldn't have been participating in the in Games of Thrones in in the struggles of the mighty. Uh, Goff is, in particular, I think, a really, really devout Puritan. Uh, he's also a guy who's really made out very well economically uh, during this period of, of no royalty, and he's done very well for himself. But these, they become major generals in a very unlikely career path at any other era. And, and they come to Boston, and they're kind of like the hobbits coming back to the Shire after they've had all their adventures, you know? I mean, they know how to do stuff. And, and so there's this great scene where there's this uh, swordsman, this demonstrator of swordplay, who's uh, staging an exhibition, I believe, in the, on the streets of Boston. Uh, and he challenges anybody to get up there and try to match his swordplay. And, I mean, this... The, the, our, the HBO version of this, I mean, it's just going to be great, but, t- but tell the story. Yes, well, basically, he challenges anyone to take him on as a, as a sort of demonstration of his own prowess, but he, he doesn't realize that in Goff and Wally, he's got two of the greatest military figures from the New Model Army. I mean, John John Milton wrote about Wally or Whaley uh, that he was the, 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 the sort of lion of the army. And Wally cannot resist this moment of uh, taking down this ridiculous man with his his sword, and he gets up with basically a broom and he puts a cheese inside a cloth as a as a shield and challenges this man. And at first, the 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 the, the, the sort of it, it, the, the man who's trying to show off his skill refuses to engage with what he pres- presumes to be an idiot, and then is made to look an absolute fool himself. Because Wally not only beats him, but paints a, a, a moustache on him with a sort of muddy broom and, and just makes him look utterly ridiculous in this duel. And then the man says, well, I don't know who you are, because the only people who could beat me would be the devil, Goff or Wally. And he's right. He got one of them right. <laughs> but it's a wonderful scene where, where you see these two men uh, adapting to life over here. And actually, you know, when they were criticized by royalists living in the colonies, those royalists got into trouble themselves at first. It was only once things had got nasty in terms of people realizing that these two were expected. There was a hundred pounds on each of their heads, and they were expected to be delivered up and, and sent back to England for for capital punishment. That this uh, that things changed for them. In this, uh, at this point, some characters are introduced who are very very um, interesting and at times kind of amusing, maybe even unintentionally amusing. So, so they're, they're, first of all, they're in Massachusetts, and then they eventually migrate um, south to, to the New Haven colony. But somewhere in there, uh, the crown is, you know, calling for something to be done about them. And, and uh, Endicott up in Massachusetts, um, uh, who basically, you know, he has, he's been part of this welcoming committee. He's been, you know, among the people kind of heaping laurels on them. But then he gets told he has to do something. And he appoints these two, I guess they're sort of merchants who have just shown up uh, in America, and and their their names are uh, Kirk uh, and Kelland, and they become sort of a Vladimir and Estragon or or 
maybe a Javert and Clouseau set of figures. They kind of don't really know the terrain very well, but they're the ones who are supposed to chase down these guys. And, yes. and they, they sort of get, I mean, one sense is they're being led around by the nose quite a bit. And they sort of know it. It's this awful sort of pathos because they know they're being idiotic. So, for instance, when they deliver, <laughs> they deliver a, 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 the, the sort of arrest papers. And, of course, they've drafted it wrong. They've, called, they've referred to the king in the wrong way. So the people here who are on the regicide side say, well, we can't actually do anything with or this. They, I think they've addressed the governor of New England. And there is no right. such there thing. There isn't such a thing. And then, and then after that... When they, they secretly want to uh, catch up with uh, Goff and, and Wally, they produce another uh, uh, warrant. And then the person who's on the side of the regicides, who's being asked to go and pursue them, reads it out very loud this in is, front of people. Yeah, this is Leet, right? Yes, Leet, yeah, who's yeah. the deputy governor, so that the word will get out. And they're going, look, don't, don't speak so loudly because <laughs> they'll find out. And they're always behind. But, you know, in the end of the day, even though they failed, they tried incredibly hard. And as a reward... They were given 250 acres of farmland each, and it sort of flagged up to people, you know, if that's what they're getting for failing, it's really worth catching these people because you will be richly rewarded. I, yeah, I didn't know whether to read it that way or whether when they got back uh, to Endicott, he went, good job, good job. You didn't really catch them. That's good. Here, Here's some tracts of land. Enjoy your retirement. All right, we have to take a quick break here. We want to come back, and in the final segment, we will be focusing quite a bit on the New Haven part of this story. So if you have anything to confess... Do it now. 860-275-7266. King Charles laid his head on the block. January 1649. Down came the axe. And in the silence that followed, the only sound that could be heard was a solitary giggle. From... I'm old enough to remember when the New Haven regicides were a minor league baseball team. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion Wolf, with help from our intern, Anna Novak. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by John Davenport. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff making cave stew, visit our website, wnpr.org. On tomorrow's show, Armpit Microbes, and that's not an indie band. And now, back to Colin. Yes, tomorrow on the show, actually, it's sort of a general salute to the microbes, the microbes living on the surface of your skin, uh, all the things that they do for you and things that they may be able to do with a, a little bit more scientific recognition of some capacities I don't know. There's no way I can explain this, so just tune in tomorrow. Uh, with me now in studio, Lord Charles Spencer, Ninth Earl Spencer, and the author most recently of Killers of the King, The Men Who Dared to Execute Charles I. Uh, I should say that tonight we've figured out where he will be. He will be at Elm Street Books in New Canaan at 7 p.m., where he will sign books. He will read to you. Uh, I will be sending at least one big fan of John Davenport, who we haven't, haven't even really mentioned yet, uh, to, to who lives in New Canaan, to go to this. But you should go, too. Also with us, Tim Harris, professor of European history at Brown University. He's got three books about the British monarchy of this general period. Um, we are going to be spending a little bit of time here now on on the, the uh, New Haven adventures. Uh, and 
I, I scarcely know where to begin, but I mean, I, I think one thing that we can say, actually, Tim Harris, since you're, uh, I assume, sitting there in Rhode Island right now. No, I'm not there. Oh, you're, uh, well, I'm in Southern California. All right, and then forget <laughs> it. Well, it would have been a great setup to say R- Rhode Island was the first of the New England colonies to sort of try to kiss and make up with Charles II, right? They sort of, they, 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 they stuck out the olive branch as quickly as they could, Correct. And we got the, the charter, what is it, 1663, yes. And so, meanwhile, New Haven, uh, uh, Charles, New Haven was really the last, the, the most bitter holdout, right? New Haven, because of John Davenport, because of the gentleman you met, uh, mentioned before, Leet, uh, there were some diehards there who were really not interested in, in, you know, in, in making up with Charles II and certainly not interested in handing over Whaley and Goff. Well, you're right. I mean, there were people in New Haven who were very keen to hand over Whaley and Goff because it would have made life a lot simpler. And it was basically, you know, although it was set up as a religious community, it was a trading area as well. And they were very nervous about upsetting the King of England because he was basically presenting uh, the, the armed forces who would protect them from other Europeans. But at the same time as that, you know, the, the, it was this consistent refusal to hand over Whaley and Goff that gave Charles an excuse. He was already upset with the way that New Haven was structured. It was far too independent for his liking. And he used this battle over the handing over the regicides to beat them over the head with it and eventually uh, sign a a law which struck out New Haven as a colony. Uh, It lost its independence and was cannibalized by Connecticut. Now, for a while, we have uh, Goff and uh, Whaley, and they're, they're jumping around all over the place, and they're laying down false tracks. They make a little feint towards Milford, like they're, they're going to head for New Netherlands, but it turns out they're really just doubling back to New Haven. They, do, they have all these uh, adventures. Sometimes they're kind of hiding in plain sight. They're living in people's houses, sometimes for two years at a time. Um, but the, the way that they are remembered, I think, uh, by tour guides and uh, people like that, is living in a cave, right? Yeah, the cave, the cave is actually a rather small portion of their hiding years. Um, there, there, there's a sort of period of a few weeks here and there, eight weeks and then a, and another period. And it, but it was their best hiding place. It was really uh, effective. You know, they didn't want to... They were very aware that if they were caught, which they thought was very likely to happen, they knew what was going to happen to them. Hanging, drawing and quartering, a very unpleasant way of going. But they didn't want to visit that uh, end on anyone else who was looking after them. So the cave was the safest place for them to live until a Native American hunting party discovered their bedding and they had to move on. And they lived in in Milford. They lived in somebody's cellar for two years uh, without most of the household even knowing they were there. Just the, the patriarch knew. And then after that, they were... they. They, actually, during that two years, they never even went outside into his orchard. It was a terrible existence. And we have their letters, uh, which I obviously quote, but uh, going backwards and forwards between them and their families. And we have to remember the, the families back home in England, these wives and children who had been abandoned by men in, in fear of their lives. Uh, you know, it was a terrible existence for them. There was obviously no handouts from the state for regicides families. And then at the same time, you have uh, them moving further and further out. They eventually ended up in Hadley, um, which was then in the middle of nowhere, and, and living uh, for a decade behind, effectively behind the chimney piece of a priest. The, there are all these inc- 
incredible stories. And, and once again, to, to come back to our, our, our double inspector Javert's, uh, Kelland and Kirk, my, my favorite one is at one point, uh, Whaley and Golf are, are living in the home of some widow. Uh, and so Kelland and Kirk, with their red coat, uh, you know, uh, retinue, burst through the door, by which time Wheeling Golf have already left by one door, circled around, come back in another door, and got behind some kind of break front or partition or something where they're just standing behind a, a fake wall, basically. Yes, it's a sort of French farce, but the, the, these, these royalists are looking everywhere except in the big cupboard in the kitchen, which, which <laughs> the, the widow has hung some pots and pans in front of, and that, that did the trick in diverting Kelland and Kirk. Um, one of the things, uh, Tim Harris, that, that has come down to us, uh, and there really is, uh, as was referenced in the introduction, a three judges motor lodge uh, right there on, on, uh, on Route 15. Uh, so we always hear about these three judges, and, and the other one is Dixwell. But I, I didn't quite realize until the last few days what a non-factor Dixwell is. I mean, he's just this, this kind of extraneous guy who somehow or other has gotten lumped into this story. Yes, hadn't they assumed he'd died already in England and they didn't realize he was alive and well in, in New England and he was living under a, an alias? Um, yes, I, I, I find this, the story fascinating and, and I, can, I, I can appreciate the fascinating this side of the, fascination this side of the Atlantic with this story because it clearly is very intriguing. Uh, I think if you look at it from the English and, and really British government's point of view, this is a low priority. The government was facing significant uh, cons- conspiratorial activity from radical discontented groups in the 1660s. There was a plot in Ireland, there was a plot in Yorkshire, there were rumours of other plots, there was a rebellion in Scotland. Um, so the government in England really, and the monarchy in England had its hands uh, you know, full really with other things they had to worry about. So yes, it was concerned with, with tracking these people down, but it had other serious, I mean, there was a significant threat to the monarchy in the 1660s, and if some of these radical conspiracies had been successful, it could have been had significant repercussions. So um, um, if they were going to go after regicides, I think they were more concerned with what the regicides were doing on the continent, especially as England became embroiled with war. There were two Dutch wars uh, at this time in the 1660s and 1670s, and, and uh, some of those, uh, there were a lot of uh, discontented nonconformists in the low countries. Although well. I, I have to just jump in and say, and uh, Charles Spencer, I mean, Charles said, you know, that one of them could be sitting up in a cave singing, let it go, but Charles II was not letting go, right? This went on for years and years and years, and he would occasionally really redouble his effort to go after these guys. Yeah, t- so Tim's right, it was sporadic and when the resources were available. So, for instance, when the frigates and 400 soldiers were sent over to try and take New Amsterdam, which, of course, became New York, their, their secondary role was also to hunt down any remaining regicides. This was, it, there was a force going over anyway, and they weren't sure by that stage whether any were still alive. Now, uh, we don't know either, because the, the main one, as I, I would sort of see it, which is Goff, uh, ends up just disappearing off the screen, as it were, in, in, in the late 1670s. Um, but, it, you know, up until his death in 1685, when Charles's sort of, well, searchlight of his attention dropped on the regicidal problem or dropped on the Amer- American colonies, that he would dovetail the two causes. Um, and, you know, he would, he would significant resources would go into it, but only when he could concentrate on the particular a- episode. We don't have time for this, but, I mean, in fact, it's possible 
probable, I think, that when Goff was up in Hadley, he got involved in a skirmish in, uh, in King Philip's War and may have, in fact, gotten everybody basically through something, once again, with his much more finely developed military skills and familiarity with the heat of battle. A rather old man at this point, I think. But Yes, so this is where history and, and sort of myth collide. But what we do know for sure is that in 1675, with King Philip's Wars, the, the Native Americans had this tactic of drawing away the men of fighting age from a colonial settlement and then doubling back and killing the elderly, the women and the children. And uh, Goff is known uh, in this sort of apocryphal tale, I suppose, but it could well be true if you look at the, the dates. Um, but basically what happened was the, the women, children and elderly were waiting in the prayer house to meet their end. And this old man, with a supposedly with a with an ancient sword and a, and a beard, appeared and said, "Look, I'm a general, and this is how we're going to do it." And apparently, led the successful uh, defence of Hadley. Now, some historians have said, "Well, the dates don't exactly correspond." But what we do know is that after this, in the, in 1675, that's the last that um, Goff had to do with Hadley, and you wonder why that was the moment where he he chose to run. All right, uh, we've got about 30 seconds left, so let's do the really important work here. Let's cast the HBO series right now. <laughs> Who's going to play Goff and, and Whaley? Well, I think, I think Benedict Cumberbatch would be uh, a, good, a good young one, and, and, you know, with the makeup there. And, mm-hmm. and I think... I, I think so that, that Is would he going to be Goff? He's got the intensity for Goff. Yeah, the younger one. Yeah. And I think you would have to have uh, a, a, an older one. I like the casting you had with... Um, well, actually, I tell you who would... Who would be very good? Would be Colin Firth. Would be the sort for, of more for Willie, yeah. yes, a rather more substantial figure. Yeah, no, I like that too. All right, that's all we have time for. Thank you so much, uh, Tim Harris. Thanks to Lord Charles Spencer, Ninth Earl Spencer. He will be at Elm Street Books in New Canaan tonight. You can keep this conversation going. You can talk regicides all day and long into the night. That's seven p.m. Get your book signed then. And thanks to Betsy Kaplan, who mastered all this history for us. I was the merry monarch, they were good old days When said and done King Charles did run England for fun I was the king, loved by everyone, my song is done How long do you think we've been hiding in this cave? I don't know, 350-something years Isn't that weird that, you know, we're still alive? And on the radio? What's a Radio I don't know. A totally made-up word just came into my head for a second.